Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. This week, to coincide with the start of Rugby Union's Rugby Championship in the Southern Hemisphere on Saturday, I'm returning to South Africa. In Rugby Reloaded episode 33, we looked at rugby in South Africa before it became an Afrikaner game. So this week, I'm going to investigate how it became an Afrikaner game. To do that, we need to recap on a bit of South African history. The Second Anglo-Boer War broke out in October 1899. The First War was a brief confrontation in 1880 and 1881. By the time the Boer War finally ended in May 1902, between 20,000 and 28,000 Afrikaner women and children had died in British concentration camps, together with probably 20,000 men, women and children, and around 27,000 soldiers of both sides. This had a huge impact on Afrikaner society. The Afrikaners Transvaal and Orange Free States lost their independence and became territories of the British Empire. They would soon take their place as provinces of the Union of South Africa when it was created in 1910. For the Afrikaner population, the war left a legacy of distrust, suspicion and hostility to all things British. There was one exception to this. There were 24,000 Afrikaner prisoners of war in British camps in St Helena, Ceylon and India and huge numbers of them filled their enforced leisure time with sport, and especially rugby. A few had learnt to play the game at elite schools, but for the vast majority, this was the first taste that they had had of the oval ball game. The experience of rugby in the prisoner of war camps helped to give rugby a distinctively Afrikaner appeal. It became a symbol of Afrikaner resistance and self-sufficiency, not least because their British guards usually preferred soccer. So when Afrikaner prisoners returned home, Rugby was part of the story about how they survived and kept their spirits up. After the war ended, the British government began the process of creating a united South Africa of white English speakers and Afrikaners. The importance of rugby to Afrikaners meant that the game's role in the informal diplomacy of the British Empire, soft power as it would be called today, became even more important. This was also to the liking of the leaders of the Rugby Football Union, then the controlling body in world rugby. They strongly believed that the sport strengthened the bonds of the British Empire, and less than a year after the end of the war, it was announced that a British team would tour South Africa. Led by Mark Morrison of Edinburgh's Royal High School former pupils, the 1903 British touring side comprised English, Scots, Irish and a solitary Welshman. No attempt was made to select the best players, and seven of the 21 tourists never actually played for their home countries. The British side lost its first three matches, won its next five, but then lost to four sides in the Afrikaner states. Needless to say, all the teams they played were white. The first two test matches were drawn, but in the final and deciding test match at Cape Town, the South African side emerged victorious, winning 8-0. It was the first time that the South Africans had won a test series, and they would not lose another test series at home for 55 years. Winning the series also meant that rugby had achieved something that South African cricket had failed to do over the course of four previous incoming England cricket tours. In fact, it wouldn't be until 1906 that the South Africans finally defeated England on the cricket pitch. So in the course of 80 minutes, rugby had become a symbol of white South African national pride. For English speakers, it was an example of their intense rivalry with their mother country. For Afrikaners, it was a way of teaching the arrogant British a lesson. Most importantly, both white communities now had a sport around which they could unite. This made rugby union a precious commodity in South African politics and its place at the heart of the creation of the new nation of the Union of South Africa was cemented by the South African rugby team's historic first overseas tour of Britain in 1906. The touring team comprised an equal number of English and Afrikaans speakers. 
all of whom were white. Racial segregation was at the heart of South African nation-building, and so non-white rugby was being marginalised and its players excluded. The touring side was captained by Paul Roos, a commanding Afrikaner forward, and the vice-captain was Harold Paddy Carolyn, an English speaker. Between them, they embodied both traditions of white South African rugby. When the South Africans landed at Southampton in September 1906, anticipation ran high. They made their British debut at Northampton, where a massive crowd saw them romp home against an East Midlands representative side by 37 points to nil. Over the course of the next seven weeks, they dispatched all of their opponents with conspicuous ease, running in 354 points to a measly 21. Even by the poor standards of English rugby union at the time, these were devastating results. A key factor in the Springbok's success was their tactical innovation. Their forwards packed down in the scrum in a new 3-4-1 formation. Three in the front row, four in the second and a single back row forward. Paddy Carolyn appears to have been responsible for introducing this tactic to the national side. But as usual in South African rugby, there is an unresolved debate as to whether it is originally developed by the villagers team in Cape Town or at Stellenbosch University. Regardless of who came up with the idea and it's quite possible that the innovation appeared in two or three places at once, the 3-4-1 formation meant that the scrum could be wheeled around more easily to attack, and that the two flankers in the second row and the back rower, the equivalent of the number 8 in modern rugby union, could quickly detach themselves to attack or to snuff out their opponent's scrum moves. The 3-4-1 formation was the beginning of the modern scrum. The Springbok's early success may have led to complacency, as they surprisingly lost their first test match 6-0 to Scotland, but they did not allow themselves to be caught napping again. A week later, they ran in four tries to defeat Ireland 15-12, and the week after that, they pulled off their most remarkable victory with an 11-0 win over a Wales team that was based on the core of the side that had famously beaten the All Blacks in the previous season. In the circumstances, England's 3-all draw in the pouring rain at Crystal Palace was probably the high point of English rugby union so far in the new 20th century. But even this could be taken as a moral victory for the South Africans. England's equalising try was scored by Freddie Brooks. A winger, Brooks had lived in Rhodesia, then seen as part of South Africa, for almost five years. Paddy Carolyn wanted to select him for the Springbok tour, but the South Africans had a minimum five-year residential qualification for touring players. So Carolyn suggested to Brooks that he should visit England during the Springboks tour so that he could be called into the team as a replacement when a player became injured. So Brooks played a few games for Bedford to keep fit, but then suddenly found himself selected for England to play against the side that he had originally intended to play for. The Springboks made their last appearance against Cardiff at the Arms Park. Desperate to restore Welsh pride, Cardiff put on a show of classic Welsh backplay with each of their four three quarters running in tries to win 17-0. The Cardiff results aside, after all, it was a Springboks final match in Britain and injuries had taken their toll, the tour was a complete triumph for the South Africans. They had come to what the English speakers in their tour party thought was the mother country, and certainly what all players regarded as the home of rugby, and returned with just two defeats from 28 matches. Moreover, they had endeared themselves to British rugby union in a way that the All Blacks had been unable to do in 1905. The clean character of the South Africans game has won for them a higher reputation all through the country than that which the New Zealanders secured, said the Guardian. They have no system of tricks for execution when the referee was not close at hand, and the penalties against them for infringing their rules have been surprisingly few in number. 
Thus began the long and close relationship between British Rugby Union and South Africa, and so it came as no surprise when the RFU invited the South Africans back to tour in 1912, more than a decade before the New Zealanders or Australians received a similar invitation. But the most striking impact of the tour was felt back at home in South Africa. On arrival at Cape Town, the team was greeted as a symbol of a new dawn for Anglo-Africana white unity. The tourists, exclaimed the veteran politician and journalist J.H. Hofmeyer, had made the Dutch and English almost one and had taken a great step in the direction of racial unity, by which he meant whites, whilst the poor petty statesmen and politicians had been trying to do the same thing in the past in vain. The Springbok success had given the newly united South African provinces a common cause, one which meant that they could stand at the same level as the British and challenge anyone in the world's most important empire. So when it came to uniting against the outside world, no sport, nor indeed any other cultural activity, offered the same opportunity as rugby union to bring together the two white and dominant sections of South African society. The Springbok, the emblem that Roos and Carolyn had quickly adopted in a hotel meeting room at the start of the tour, would become the national symbol of white South Africa, not just of its rugby union team, but also of its national airline and many other institutions. In just a few short years, rugby had become the most visible symbol of Africana and English-speaking white South African culture, and that remains as true today as it was over a century ago. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony, and if you wanted to give it deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.